Welcome to the Billie Jean King National Tennis Centre in Flushing Meadows, New York, as we look back on the first week of action at the US Open. I'm Chris Bowers, and I'm delighted to be joined once again by the former WTA player Jill Cravers, as well as fellow commentator Brian Clark, who's been working with me on the USTA's own radio channel, US Open Radio. So, Jill, general feeling from the first week? Well, I think it's been electric, as it always is in New York City. I think there's been some phenomenal matches. We've witnessed quite a few five-setters as well that have had some drama to the matches. So I think there's just been some, some really high-quality competitive matches. I think the way that all these players are fighting in the end and being able to last in the heat that we experienced in the first week has just been phenomenal. Brian? I think there's a couple things that really stand out to me. One is the fact that this really feels like the U.S. Open is back. We had the tournament with no fans in 2020. Last year we had fans, but there were some limits on capacity and things weren't totally back to normal. This feels like the U.S. Open again. The atmosphere is electric. Just the crowds are, uh, they have come out, record attendance. Of course, Serena Williams having a lot to do to that. But as far as tennis goes, We've talked so much about how open the game is right now. And to see these people who came into this tournament with a chance of winning, pretty much everybody we said has a shot is still alive. Maybe the exceptions might be, as we sit here, a Taylor Fritz or a Sitsipas who lost earlier than they would have expected. But the fact that with so many people trying to grab that, in many cases, first major trophy, they have delivered uh, heading into the second week. Brian, as somebody who is the local here, New Jersey boy who's lived in New York. It always strikes me when I come here that the US Open has to fight for sports attention in its own country more than the other three majors do. And, and there's been New York Mets games this week just across the way. Do you think that the Serena show has in fact helped the US Open capture the sporting attention in the way that it might have struggled otherwise in the first week? Without question. And usually the first week of the Open is where it has its kind of most prominent spot in the sports calendar because you mentioned the Mets, the baseball team, they're home. They're having a fantastic year. So the Mets have taken up a lot of oxygen, uh, certainly in New York. But nationally, the U.S. Open usually shines before the football season starting. College football, university football, that really got going this weekend. And then the NFL has its first game Thursday and the big first day of the season is men's final Sunday. So th that takes up all the sporting oxygen here. So yes, Serena has undoubtedly given this tournament a lift because like you said, this does not have kind of the same level as the other three do in their respective countries. It's a great event. People love coming here, but in terms of how it's covered and the attention that's paid to it, uh, it is a little bit more on the back burner as we gear up for football season. And Jill, does that mean that with Serena having gone out now that the tournament's having to fight more for attention or do you think that as we get into the second week and especially with someone like Nadal who plays a similar role to Serena in terms of the veteran that an awful lot of people want to see do well do you think actually there's enough left now that this is going to be a major event in the American sporting marketplace? I, I definitely think so. I think obviously I agree with Brian. Serena brought in a record attendance. That was the story of the first week for sure but there's so much attention around so many of these new players that are coming up, the youngsters coming up. I was just actually out on the grounds meeting with a friend of mine 
who I grew up with in Boston, and her daughter was a ball kid for the Labor Cup, and her favorite player is Casper Ruud. And the fact that she got to experience that just gives them a little bit more insight into all these other players that are coming up. And another friend of mine, his favorite player is Hatchinoff. So it's just fun to hear different names consistently coming forward uh, amongst these youngster ki younger kids that have these new favorites that are coming up. So I think there's still going to be a huge buzz around the sport. There's a lot of great depth to both the women's and the men's game games, and I think we're seeing a lot more of their personality shine and their characters come through. So I think it's an awesome time. Well, when the draw was made, there was one match that stood out. The fourth round matchup between the top seed and defending champion Daniel Medvedev and the Wimbledon runner-up Nick Kyrgios. It went to Kyrgios in four enthralling sets in just under three hours. Jill, what did you make of it? Well, the quality, first of all, was absolutely outstanding from both players. I think that first set was really important. Um, they both had set points. It kept going back and forth, and I just feel like Kyrgios served a little bit better. I served better throughout the entire match, but I think that was the big difference in that first set, too. Both players were getting the crowd going, which was exciting to see. I mean, it was an unbelievable atmosphere. I think uh, Medvedev did a good job of regrouping after having some set points, getting that second set under his belt. But Kyrgios just went to a complete no another level in, in the third and fourth. You see, what surprised me was just how easy it was for Kyrgios in the third and fourth. And I, I sort of found myself wondering, has Medvedev been found out? Has he actually got as far as he's going to? Um, OK, number one, you can't go further than that. But, you know, is there a risk that players now know how to play him? Um, I don't necessarily think so because I think if you talk to other players they still feel like when they play him it's like trying to figure out a chess match sort of because he's so intelligent on the court he's so consistent I, I just think his serve in particular hurt him he was making I, I think his first serve was 61% I looked at one point at the end of the fourth set when it looked like it was about to finish because I just notice he wasn't getting a lot of free points off his first serve he wasn't even hitting with a lot of pace and I think that allowed Kyrgios to just get more aggressive feel the rhythm more get more comfortable and we saw Medvedev trying to adjust and do some different things he originally started really close up on the baseline to return Kyrgios's serve I know um, when Kyrgios beat him in Montreal, he was serving and volleying a lot, so he tried to take that away from Kyrgios in the beginning of the match by being closer in. Then at the end, he backpedaled a little bit, and Kyrgios started coming into the match. So you could see Medvedev trying to figure things out, but I think Kyrgios capitalized on a ton of second serves on Medvedev, and from that point on, he felt so good that he just started swinging even more, and just the extra power on his shots. I think from that point, he started feeling really confident and felt confident to close it out in four. You see, the interesting thing here is that we've always known Kyrgios can do this, but he hasn't done it backing up. And now he's got to the Wimbledon final, albeit six matches rather than seven. Can he do it for seven matches, this tournament, on a, on a more unforgiving surface, the, the hard courts of the US Open? I think these courts suit him. And yes, to answer your question, yes, I think he can do it. I think he can do it. through. He proved he could sustain that level for two weeks at Wimbledon, get to the final. I think that was an emotional roller coaster ride for him at Wimbledon. I think he learned a lot from getting that final. Took a long break and then started the U.S. swing in Washington, D.C. and won that tournament and started playing really, won the doubles in Atlanta, first of all, in the previous tournament won singles and doubles in Washington DC and I think 
he got to this mentality where he just trusts himself a little bit more, doesn't have many mental lapses where he let a couple, where he can previously let a couple points go by here and there. You didn't see that that often from him, maybe slightly in the second, but he quickly regrouped in the third. And he credits a lot to his team, obviously. That's, we always talk about how important it is to have a good support team around you emotionally on and off the court and have, have them be there for you. And he credits them a lot and credits his Australian mates and other players to be able to sustain these long weeks when you have these two months on the road. So he now plays Karen Hachanov in the quarterfinals, who had to go five sets to beat Karenia Busta. If he wins that one, he'll play either Berrettini or Rude in the semis. Does this leave Kyrgios's favourite to reach the final from the top half of the draw, or even favourite for the whole tournament? I think after the way he played today, it's hard to argue against him getting to the final. I know all those other players are playing exceptionally well, but the way Kyrgios lifted his level and the way he sometimes made just the points, the way he constructed the points looks so easy. He has such amazing variety. He can disguise quite a few of his shots. I think he tricked Medvedev a few times today where Medvedev got surprised. But even though all those players, Hachinov has some great weapons. He's got a big serve and a big forehand. He's going to be trying to use those first strike shots to get on top of Kyrgios. But the way Kyrgios played today, it's hard to see him not get to the final stage. And Brian, how do you see Kyrgios for the rest of this U.S. Open? The way he's played this summer, he might be the favorite to win this U.S. Open and to get through a test like Daniil Medvedev, the world number one, the defending U.S. Open champion. We know that Nick thinks he can play and beat anybody in the world. We've seen him do it. That's the talent he had. It's part of what's made him uh, frustrating at times. But that level of commitment we have seen since the Wimbledon final, and the big question on that day was, is this going to invigorate him to go for more to reach higher in his career and I think we've gotten a pretty clear answer in the two months since then now he's through to the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open he set a pretty clear endpoint for his season it's a long year on the road for these Australian players he wants to get home see his family and uh, the way he's playing right now there'd be no better way to maybe end with the ultimate high of potentially winning the U.S. Open well we'll have to see how the week pans out one other player who's made his presence felt this week is Matteo Berrettini, the Italian who seemed perfectly placed to mount a serious challenge at Wimbledon, only to be thwarted by COVID. He's through to the quarterfinals after beating Alejandro Davidovich Fokina. Berrettini's an unusual player in that he relies far more on the sliced backhand than many other top players. Mike Cation asked Berrettini about the way his game is built. I think that growing up, you know, like with my coach, that is my actual coach, uh, we figured that, you know, my, my weapons would have been uh, the serve and the forehand and and obviously then you shape around also for example the fitness you know like I'm I like to play one through maximum three shots and, and that's what I do in the gym like I like to be ex explosive so we work on that so it's something that you shape around the whole thing is not just uh, you know like a, a good stroke and then you do other stuff so it's everything together it's important that you know the fitness part the fitness guys is talking to the, the coach and, and then the slice is coming from actually I got injured unfortunately when I was 17 and uh, I couldn't play with my two-handed backhand because my left wrist was hurt was hurt and I started to, to play more slice you know practicing for three months I think with Vincenzo my coach and and I started to have more feeling on this stroke. And then I figured that, you know, on tour, sometimes it's a good weapon uh, to mix it up, you know, like changing the pace is something that is really successful, especially could be here or on grass, for example. So, yeah, it's, um, 
it's something that the more you play, the more you learn what you like to do, and and sometimes it helps me in the slice to to run around my forehand. So yeah, that's that's why. Yeah, that's the exact question I wanted to ask. How how do you use the backhand slice to get to that forehand? How does it happen for you? I mean, um, I don't think there is a, like a secret or something. It's just that. Uh, when you play a good slice, the opponent can either play like a slice, so then you have more time to run around the forehand, or anyway, he has to play a little bit more spin, so the ball is gonna have like more height, and and I have time to, to run around my forehand, and and that's the that's the thing. And also when you go line, you know, it's it's not easy to kind of like uh, move the ball that much, so. Uh, that's a good weapon, but at the same time, like all the weapons, you don't have to use it too much. Otherwise, I mean, the opponents are the best in the world, so they know they're gonna figure it out how to handle that thing. In the, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. Jill Berrettini into the quarterfinals. He's got to be a major factor now because he's producing when he's fit. These performances, getting to the second week of majors on a regular basis now. I mean, he's always dangerous. He's got a huge game, as we all know. Big serve, big forehand. That's where he's his most dangerous is when he's firing with those two particular shots. He can be anybody. And I feel like over the course of time, his backhand slice has improved tremendously. He's getting a lot more depth on the slice. He's using it more to set up the forehand more often and good variety, shorter part of the court, more depth. So he's being really particular about when to use the slice and how to use it. So I think he's just getting smarter with his shot selection. But these courts suit him tremendously. They're really quick courts. He can get a lot of free points off the serve and the forehand and always be more in an offensive position the majority of the time. So I think this is this is a very good um, opportunity for him to be able to go deep. I mean, he said in that interview that he likes to play a maximum of three shots when he's right. serving. Now, when you're using the slice a lot, that's a big ask. Well, I think, yes. I mean, that's what his game is built on, the first one-two punch. I think he would prefer to have shorter points because he's in control. But he also has a really good mindset as if the point does go longer, that he can use that slice effectively. I, I feel like he's gotten a, done a better job of when the points go longer. He's willing to be more patient and stay in and wait for maybe a better opportunity to then attack. I think that's improved a lot with him. Brian, do you feel that Berrettini has achieved enough to be one of the marquee names of tennis, or do you think he actually has to win a major? His best so far runner-up at Wimbledon last year. And a big what-if with this year, with contracting COVID right before Wimbledon, where he had won the two grass uh, tournaments in the run-up. I think he's very close. I think he's won a lot of fans around the world, based in part on his looks. He's a, he's a good-looking guy. He's a charismatic guy. He's a popular guy. And I think he's a favorite here from the semifinal he played three years ago against Nadal, where they played a, a gripping opening set that Nadal won in a tiebreak. And I think it was 90 minutes or close to it. Uh, then Nadal sort of rolled from there. I, I think he's, he's right on the cusp. And I think the fact that his game with the slice you guys were talking about, it looks a, a little bit different than some of the other peers, the other guys of his generation. So I think that makes him a little bit more appealing as well. Coming up shortly, we'll take a look at the players in the bottom half of the draw. But first, the opening week of a slam always provides many stories and not just about the players moving through to the latter stages. Many youngsters announce their presence, even if they don't make it to week two. Having beaten the Australian John Millman in the opening round, the American youngster Emilio Nava managed to take a set off Andy Murray before losing in four. But when I met up with the 20-year-old after the match, he was already thinking about what he needed to do better moving forward. Having consistent results means you're right there, you're right there. There's always a breakthrough week. 
And I mean, this week was just amazing playing here in my home soil. You know, first match on our thrash ever, first of many, hopefully, uh, against a legend. Right, took a set off of him. I mean, I'm just, I'm just super happy with the way, with the way it all turned out this week. What do you get out of a match against Andy Murray on the biggest purpose-built tennis stadium in the world? Right. Well, first of all, I get experience off of him. You know, I understand. I'll definitely watch his match back, look at him more than look at what I was doing in the match. You know, see how he was responding to all those winners and the unforced errors, just to see what he was doing. You know, because it's only learning from those great players. So. Hopefully I see him again, right? But uh, but good luck to him, and uh, it's I'll just take experience from this match, a lot of it. I mean, you matched him for two sets, so is a big part of it being able to last longer matches than you've been able to last to date? Exactly. I had a I had a three hour fifty eight match first round against uh, Millman, where I, truly I felt I felt pretty good physically. You know, long match. I was maybe a little scared that maybe I might dip in energy, and I don't feel like I did. But then. Um, and then against Andy, we had a really tough first set. It was like an hour and 25, I think, really physical. And we were both going at each other. And I ended up coming on top, and I was, I was super happy for that, right? <laughs> Some extra time on Ash. But then I feel like the experience just got the best of me. I feel like he knew what to do in the important moments, and I was kind of struggling trying to find my feet in specific points. And it was, it was just tough to figure out what I had to do in those moments. And I think that just comes with playing a lot of matches, playing a lot of points, playing these bigger tournaments, playing the, the best opponents in the world and just, just trying to learn from them. You mentioned a minute ago about the importance of staying free of injury. What are you doing to give yourself the best chance of staying free from injury? I like to say, like, you know, just things don't change, win or lose, you know. You win a match, you go do your bike routines. You lose a match, you go do your bike routines, you know. Things, things don't change, and at the end, if it's working... Why change it, <laughs> right? So um, I've been trying to just stay super disciplined on, on my routines. You know, your routines are your safe place. You go there to just get into the zone, get into that good feeling. And I've been doing that for the first nine months of the year. So I got last couple of months. Hopefully I get into next gen. And I mean, I'm, I'm super motivated to go there. What do you have to develop so that you... What is the thing that's missing from your game? Um, I think it's... I would say calmness, you know, being calm on the court. You know, I've, I'm a very energetic person. You know, if I get, if I hit a big shot, I'll probably look at the crowd. But I think it's heavily on just trying to balance high energy and just being calm with myself and understanding what's going on in the court, strategy. So just, I say, calmness. And yet when you won the first set against Murray, there was such a wonderful reaction. I mean, it almost went viral, the, the, the little video clip. I mean, can you keep that? Because that's surely part of your on-court personality. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I really, I really enjoy, enjoy looking at the crowd, you know, smiling, having fun. That, that's, a big part of, that's a big part of what I'm doing here, right? Just trying to have fun. So uh, after I hit that shot, I mean, I was, I was kind of surprised myself. I look at my box and I give a loud come on and I just smile at the crowd and that was, that was huge. Ryan, you saw a decent amount of the Murray-Nava match. How hopeful are you about Emilio Nava, especially with his very positive attitude and tremendous athletic background. 
I think there's a lot to be excited about, and so much of what you're going to be excited about is what he's going to learn from that experience. And Andy Murray even said it on court afterwards, just how he's not used to playing a match like that, where he had gotten through that five-set win in his opener, as you mentioned, Chris, and that took a lot out of him. So there was so much to win that first set against Murray to take that set uh, that it just seemed like he ran out of gas after doing that, and he's going to learn from that. He's going to get better. He's got the athleticism to do it, and we will see what the future holds for him. One of the things I found fascinating about what he said afterwards was that he, he said, I'm going to watch the tape of the match and see what Murray did. I mean, did you do that in your day? Was this more of a, a thing that they do now because it's easier to get hold of a video recording? No, I did that. I wouldn't say I did it at the beginning stages of my career, more towards the latter stages, mainly because it was more available to watch. But we used to get little flash drives of all our matches from the WTA and be able to watch them and critique. So I did do that quite a bit. It was very useful and very beneficial because sometimes you think you're doing one thing on the court and then you watch yourself and it was completely opposite. You have no idea what you're doing or you didn't necessarily see things. And once you get that outside perspective, it becomes more apparent. So I think it's something that is very beneficial and a lot of players are taking advantage of it. He used a phrase there, which I've never heard before, though it seems obvious. He says, your routines are your safe place. Do most players build their game on a routine that they then deviate from when they need to? Uh, Sometimes deviate, but sometimes those routines are really helpful as far as not, not allowing you to think too much. I think that's, for me, where the routines were very beneficial is when you stick to your routines or when you stick to even something to calm you down, whether more non-tennis related, if it was breathing exercises or going to the back of the court before you go up to the line to serve, all those things can help you not think too much. And you just sort of go into automatic zone or the zone is what we usually say in tennis when you're in the zone. And that's really beneficial is when you can get those routines or those superstitions out and you just keep using them. It can really act as a guide for you. Well, from one young American, Emilio Nava, to another, the qualifier, Brandon Holt. He started the year with a ranking in the 900s, but after three qualifying matches as a wild card into qualifying and two remarkable main draw matches, including victory over the Indian Wells champion Taylor Fritz before succumbing on a final set tiebreak to Pedro Cachin, I asked Holt if he was happy with his results over the past week. I leave this with a lot of, uh, a lot of hope, a lot of things to improve and a lot of... Uh... I guess I, I just have a lot to look forward to right now, so um, I'm just happy to be playing, honestly, because I was, went through a tough time where I wasn't able to play, so just even being on the court just makes me happier a little bit, and uh, in the tougher moments, I, I, I think that I'm just uh, slightly more happy than I was before. This time last year, you were recovering from hand surgery. What, what was the problem? And you were off for about eight months, right? Yeah, I had a what's called an osteoid osteoma in my hand that had to be removed, and it took a while for the doctors to find it. And then finally they found it, and they had to basically cut a chunk of it out, like cut a chunk of my bone out. Um, so I was out for eight, eight months from playing competitively, and I started hitting, I think, maybe like six months after out for six months and then I was slowly hitting and slowly getting back into playing but um yeah that was a that was a tough tough long road and um yeah I mean it was a little bit touch and go where it wasn't a for sure thing everything was going to be fine you know you kind of want to ask the doctor so if I do this I'm for sure fine and the answer was never really yeah you're for sure fine because I mean you're dealing with something in your hand and in the fourth metacarpal of my hand um and they had to basically go in and cut out a chunk of the bone. So they were worried. 
a that I would it would compromise the integrity of the bone too much to where it could lead to fracture in the future or um I mean there's some important tendons in there that you kind of need to grip a racket so uh yeah fortunately the surgery went well and I haven't felt any pain since how did you survive that mentally because you must have been on edge in terms of your whole mood and emotions I don't know I mean it was tough I think maybe spending time with friends family things like that I mean I and I couldn't really work out either because I would feel my heartbeat in my hand. It would hurt so bad. I, it wasn't only grabbing things. It was more when my heart rate was elevated. I mean, my hand was swollen. My hand had a had a bump on it, and it was just um, painful to everything. So it was not not an easy time. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't really know what I did. I watched TV. I sat around. You know, I couldn't even play guitar. I love playing guitar. Couldn't even do that. So it was definitely a terrible time for me. And then after two months of practicing, you took yourself off to Cancun, New Mexico, and you ended up winning three tournaments back-to-back. What made you go there, and what was the key to your success? Yeah, I mean, that was um, at the beginning of the year. I think that was maybe the end of January, where I was kind of finally match-ish ready. I mean, I just kind of wanted to try playing. Um, and I went down there, and it was close, and I could have, I could get in to the main draw there, so... I decided to go there, and uh, yeah, I won three matches in a row, 15 matches straight, and it wasn't really, it was definitely a, a test for my hand that I wasn't expecting. I wasn't expecting to go down there and win when I wasn't completely completely ready in my mind, but um, my hand held up. We're a few minutes into this interview, and I still haven't mentioned the fact that you're Tracy Austin's son, so I, I deliberately did that, because you probably get sick of being compared to your mum, don't you? I guess. I mean, I'm, I'm used to it, I guess, by now, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, she she's, has a great legacy here at the US Open. I've grown up coming here for my whole life. So, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been uh, I, don't, I don't know the difference not having my mom as uh, Tracy Austin. What has she given you to your career? What in particular? Uh, I think maybe just some life lessons about, you know, hard work. She's very driven. She's passionate. She does things 100%. Um, those things, I think, are what, what I take away. Uh, not so much like strokes or anything like that but more so just uh attitude you know a, a winning attitude you know an attitude of uh of a champion she definitely has that and she's very competitive and things like that so all those things i think i take away she told me a few weeks ago she was trying very hard to be a good tennis mum. how how well is she doing on that front she's doing good she gets nervous um when when she when she watches she definitely gets nervous um i think my dad does too but um yeah, I mean she's been she's been great. She's been there for me every step of the way. She's been feeding balls to me as I came back from my injury and and beyond. And she always is there to help me in any way that she can. It's a massive tennis family. I mean, she was playing at the age of what three and four. She had brothers and sisters who were playing. She won mixed doubles at Wimbledon with her brother. I mean, what's it like growing up in a family where there is just tennis everywhere? I don't know. It, it, I, we played all sports, honestly, so I think it was just a sports family in general. Um, yeah, I mean, I played baseball, basketball, soccer. I played a little bit of everything my whole entire life. And then, uh, I mean, my aunts and uncles all played tennis, and both my parents played tennis. And, yeah, I mean, we all were just playing everything. And then we decided to play whatever respective sport that we wanted, my brothers and I. And I eventually came down to baseball and tennis, and I decided to play tennis eventually. And, uh stuck with it and I'm, I'm happy that I made that decision for sure but it definitely wasn't a tennis tennis or nothing type uh, situation that my brothers and I were in it was a 
play whatever sport you want and uh, do whatever you want, and eventually I chose to, to play tennis. You mentioned a few minutes ago guitar. If you got tennis from your mum, you got the music from your dad, did you? No, not from my dad. Maybe from my grandma. My grandma plays uh, piano, and she, she loves music, and I love music as well. And I, I got a different injury in, in my ankle in college, and I was like, well, if I'm just going to sit here on Instagram all day long scrolling, I might as well get a guitar. So I just went into the guitar store, picked up a guitar, and started playing, and the rest is history, and I've, I've loved it ever since. So you hadn't played guitar before you were in college? Nope, I hadn't played guitar and got injured, and yeah, I mean, I figured... I mean, so much of my my friends and I all just spend time just on Instagram or on whatever social media all day long when we're trying to do homework or whatever else, and we'll just pick up the phone and just spend 15 minutes lost doing nothing on on social media, which is just terrible. And so I was like, huh, like I could just do something that would actually be be uh, fun and a skill that I could learn. So I literally, yeah, I just went to the guitar store, picked up a guitar, and started playing. And and for however many years in the beginning when I was just learning, I. Uh, Whenever I had the urge to pick up my phone, I just picked up the guitar instead and just learned how to play, and I've loved it. And now I've, I've learned how to play the piano and things like that, so I'm loving it. Did you teach yourself guitar? Uh, I did. I taught myself guitar. I um, I learned, I mean, just based on songs that I love. Um, I don't know, old 60s, 70s music is my favorite, and uh, so those are songs that I like, and they're relatively easy to play. Just I picked up the chords, and then from there I just could learn how to play a lot of songs and now I'm just enjoying playing and I bring a guitar with me everywhere that I play so I'll, I'll, on the road I've got a guitar with me I just have to ask you, you had hand surgery how does that affect guitar playing? Uh, I wasn't able to play at all when I had my hand surgery or before so when I was finally able to play tennis and then I was able to play guitar I was a happy man <laughs> Brandon Holt letting us know that however focused you are on tennis you still need something to distract you what a good lesson about how not to get consumed by social media Jill talks about Tracy Austin she says she's driven, hardworking, has the attitude of a champion is that an advantage or a disadvantage? I mean he's obviously very relaxed about having her as a mother but he's known nothing else and yet it can be a disadvantage if you don't achieve your goals I, I view it as an advantage. I think when you have access to someone like that as a parent or even as a mentor, I think it has a huge advantage because you get into the mindset of how they dealt with pressure moments, how they dealt with expectations. And Brandon in particular has mentioned that he doesn't see his mom with what she's achieved as any sort of pressure. He doesn't use that word at all when he's asked about his mom with the champion that she was. So I, I view it as an advantage. I think she was, she did a good job of staying very composed during his matches. I know she was feeling a lot of ten, tension inside of her during those matches, but she outwardly portrayed it as very calm and just supportive for Brandon. And he did a phenomenal job. He went through qualifying, had a great win, of course, against Taylor Fritz. But the fact that he had to gut all those qualifying matches out to deal with those pressure moments over and over again, they were all three set matches in qualifying, was a tremendous job. And I feel like he has that mentality. He's very calm on the court. And so that just shows me that having Tracy behind him as a parent has, has helped him because she's exuded sort of that calmness in him. Well, we look forward to following the fortunes of Brandon Holt and Emilio Nava over the coming months and years.
You're listening to the ATP podcast with me, Chris Bowers, the former WTA player Jill Cravis, and the US Open radio commentator Brian Clark. Let's look now at the bottom half of the draw. The obvious name there is Rafael Nadal. We didn't quite know what to expect about him, given that he came in to the tournament with so few matches since he had to pull out of his Wimbledon semi-final. Brian, have you been particularly impressed with him over the over the first week of the tournament? I have, and I've been impressed with how he's looked, uh, you know, physically, where his biggest injury he picked up was that freak moment uh, in the match against Fabio Fanini where his, the racket whipped up and hit him in the face and cut his nose, and there was some blood in that medical timeout. I mean, that was the most kind of bizarre thing. And, yeah, Rafa, a uh, little bit concerning in that he dropped the first set to Rinky Hijikata. But how often have we seen another promising young player, but how often have we seen you know somebody like Nadal or yeah, even a Djokovic uh, lose a set and then just figure out the opponent and go through the gears and put them away comfortably? So I think Nadal uh, was an, uh, 18 in a row now over Gasquet, so we, we know that that was going to go that way way or we had a pretty strong suspicion it would I've been impressed from Nadal he'll get a a test in maybe the most locked in Francis Tiafo we've seen Um, so that should be fun to watch but I think if you're a Nadal fan he's 22 and 0 this year and matches played at majors You, you can't ask for more than that it's a phenomenal year that Nadal is having in a way, he was a little lucky in that second round because he was a set and 4-2 down against Fabio Fanini, And perhaps the Fanini of five years ago would have turned the screw a little bit more rather than played a couple of loose games. And yet, how often do we see Nadal not being that impressive in week one and get better as the tournament goes on? That's exactly right. And I feel like that's what's happened this first week. I think he's looked pretty good. He definitely has room to grow and improve, but he's one of the best at being able to maybe not be playing his best and somehow find a way to win. When I was watching the match against Fognini, I was surprised. It's It's been a while since I haven't seen Nadal make, make so many unforced errors. And nothing against Fognini. I thought Fognini played great and super solid, but Nadal was misfiring on quite a few shots that we're not used to seeing. But it just takes a couple games. I Fognini did drop his level for a couple games, but that just take that's all it takes for Nadal to be able to turn matches around. It's phenomenal to watch. I don't know how he does it because when you're playing matches where you don't feel great, a lot of times your attention it's it's hard to get away from that feeling, but somehow Nadal finds a way. And and then he capitalizes on that in the next rounds. He's gonna be up really excited about that match against Tiafo. There's gonna be a lot of fireworks. Tiafo loves the big stage. He's gonna be up for that match against Nadal. But I do feel Nadal's gonna rise to the occasion. Does Tiafo believe he can win? Uh, that's a good question. I, I hope so, because I think he's got the game to win. I think he's he's playing phenomenal. That was a good test, his last round against Schwartzman. That's the type of player that you feel like Tiafo might start to get a little impatient in the long rallies. But he kept his level and sustained his level throughout, and I think that's an amazing step for him. I think that's a great sign. So I think he will bring that level against Nadal. So who could stop Nadal this side of the final? I mean, the obvious names are Cam Norrie. Carlos Alcaraz, Yannick Sinner, Andre Rublev. Cam Norrie is the interesting name because I feel like for somebody who has now played at a top 10 level in the top 10 for about a year, we just don't talk about him that much, especially here in the U.S. I mean, he has kind of come under the radar. He did not arrive with the hype that Andy Murray did 15 plus years ago. 
Nori, I was very bullish on as a dark horse favorite, uh, maybe to win the tournament or to at least to make the final before the tournament. But then I backed off. I got a little bit scared with my prediction because he got such a difficult draw. And he'll have a difficult fourth round match against Andre Rublev, who just came through what might be the men's match of the tournament against Denis Shapovalov. So based on how Rublev has played, and that was a high-level match against Shapovalov, the winner of Nori Rublev, if Nadal can beat Tiafo, I think could give Rafa a tough time in a quarterfinal. Well, we'll hear from a couple of the players in the bottom half of the draw uh, coming up now. Just mentioning that Nadal's win over Fanini means he has qualified for the ATP finals in Turin. Not that there was any doubt that he would, but it is now mathematically certain that he will be among the eight to qualify for Turin. As recently as the tour event in Montreal, the US Open third seed Carlos Alcaraz admitted that for the first time the pressure was getting to him when he spoke with Mike Cation. This is uh, new for me. Uh, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm living the, this uh, as new as new thing to uh, couldn't handle the pressure or feel the, the pressures as much as I, I did in, in Montreal. And uh, of course, my team, my family, and and uh, yeah, everybody is helping me to uh, to don't be worried about about it and uh, just keep keep going with with a smile mm -hmm. and uh, keep going with uh, a lot of energy. Yeah, you mentioned the smile, and that's what I was actually going to ask you about next, because I think fans have been drawn to you because of that joy and the passion with which you play. How do you maintain that week to week, day to day? That's what I am. Uh, you know, I, uh, I would say I'm a friendly guy with uh, always smiling, uh, always, uh, uh, I mean, mm, laughing, you know, and uh, that's what I, what I am, and I will never uh, I will never change, and that's uh, why I keep the same week by week and the tournament by tournament. My last question for you: uh, Obviously, every tournament now you've you've kind of been there, but it's just been such an incredible jump, an incredible leap for you. Are you within all of this, within in all the matches? Are you able to appreciate what you have done this year and where you are? Yes, of course. Uh, I mean, I, I would say sometimes it's uh, really tough to, to appreciate or to realize what, what you have done uh, in just uh, a short period, you know, in just a, a year. But uh, obviously, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm realizing the, what I'm doing, uh, uh, what I am, and uh, of course, it's, it's amazing. So this is uh, something that, that I really wanted when I, when I was a, a kid. and. And of course, uh, really wanting one at the beginning of, of the year to, to be in the position that I am right now. And uh, of course, I, I will try to, to be the same, to play the same or train the same uh, until the, the, the last, until the, the end of the, of the year or uh, obviously into the many years that I have ahead. You get the sense, Jill, that Carlos is really keen to keep a sense of who he is. How difficult is it to, to remain true to yourself when, when being a top player is so demanding of so much of your life? I think it's very difficult. I think one of the most important things is to make sure you have that good team around you. And I think he... I think he has a phenomenal team. He has, his coach is Juan Carlos Ferreira, who's been in that situation over and over again. And, you know, ta you 
bringing up the Tracy Austin um, topic that we were talking about, to have a champion behind you, I think it's beneficial. And this is another one of those examples that it's beneficial for Alcaraz to have the mentality of Juan Carlos Ferro in his box, on his team. And you can see it's had a huge impact. I do feel like overall Carlos has not changed from the interviews that I've heard him when he speaks, the way he addresses the crowd, the way he handles himself, his demeanor on the court, I think is phenomenal for someone that's so young. And so it, even though it's challenging, it's obviously possible. We've seen it happen f before with many players. And I feel like you're seeing that with Alcaraz. As he's growing, he's continuing to be the same, act the same, and it's, he's just fun to watch. There was an interview that Nadal gave to a television station earlier in the week when uh, they said, how, how do you keep the intensity going? You know, 36 years old now. And he said quite simply, I like what I do. Yeah, he loves it. It goes a long way. And, and I wonder whether that's Alcaraz's key. And in fact, I don't know if you've seen throughout your playing career, some players can manage to keep that sense of loving what they do, while others, it becomes a grind. Well, you have to love the challenge. And I think Rafa had, had one of the best quotes ever where you have to love to suffer and I loved that quote I mean and if you can enjoy the, those toughest moments then when you're playing phenomenal it's easy to enjoy those moments but it's about learning how to enjoy when things aren't going your way and that's just like a deep level of love for the sport. Another player we mentioned there is Andre Rublev he came through a four-hour marathon against Denis Shapovalov to reach the round of 16 when Rublev spoke to our reporter Ursin Kaderis ahead of the US Open he was reluctant to talk up his chances. I'm afraid to say something good because when I say something good, then uh, I prove that I always do opposite. So I, I better to say everything is going well, keep working, and we'll see what's going to happen. Are you superstitious? A bit. Or a lot. <laughs> I don't know. Especially about these things. Yeah, right? no, these things, yes. <laughs> I, I, I'm the guy who better not to say, just stay quiet. <laughs> But do you say these things to yourself? I try to take them away, to keep them away. Just focus to work hard and that's it. Yeah. How do you motivate yourself? In my case, uh, I was lucky that I don't really need to motivate myself because I love tennis with all my heart and it comes natural to me. So I don't really need to force or to push myself. It comes natural, I don't know. And the things that I need to work outside the court, fitness-wise, then yes, there I need to push myself to try to find motivation because sometimes it's mentally or just in general can be boring. And there I need to, okay, you're here not, you're here to, to be a better player. And so then it's for me, it's easier to motivate myself because I know if I'm gonna do here better, it's gonna help me in tennis. He's a lovely man, Rublev. Though I do often get the sense, Brian, that Rublev's forever fighting to be positive. It doesn't come naturally to him. I get that same feeling, Chris, and I think we probably get the feeling from the same place, and that's just watching how hot he seems to run on court, where pe people make errors and they react in different ways, but there's this fury that's not far below the surface you see with Rublev and then you contrast that with exactly as you said a, a guy who's really nice off the court I mean before the U.S. Open or maybe during on some days off he went to a couple of Harry Styles concerts at Madison Square Garden which you, you contrast that with the figure you see on court and it does take some ground to cover so yeah I think that is an ongoing challenge to try to stay uh, mentally positive we see Yannick Sinner's really taken on a lot of fist pumps between points he's trying to get himself going he's adopted that positive body language but it does feel like more work for Rublev. Jill, Rublev 
of the three Russians, Rublev, Medvedev, Khachanov, he was the first one to get to the quarterfinals here um, several years ago. And yet he has never really made the next step, despite several opportunities to do so, notably at Roland Garros this year. How much do you think it's a step he has to overcome? Or, or do you think, having seen lots of players in the early part of their career get stuck at a certain stage, it will eventually come? I do think it will eventually come for him. I thought Brian referenced his match against Shapovalov. That was a huge match for him to come through. I feel like that was definitely the match, one of the matches of the tournament so far. But the fact, the way it was done, you're talking about those small stepping stones that make a difference. And in the fifth set, he had match points. He was serving for it, didn't convert, ended up going to a tie break and had to deal with the fact that he had those match points. Shapovalov broke him and had to sort of regroup. And those are those small moments that you feel like, okay, maybe that'll get to him, that he wasn't able to close it out. But mentally, that was one of the strongest I've seen him. So I, that's a great sign. And it's about those small stepping stones that make a big difference going later on into events. And in that short interview, he mentioned superstitions. Can't let that go without asking you, what were your... My superstitions? Uh, yeah, during oh a match. Goodness. I had superstitions more early on in my career, and I sort of... Once I got older, I let them go a little bit more. But I had more routines rather than superstitions. I mean, I used to go to dinner, the dinner at the same place every time. or, But that, that quickly left. But I had more routines where, you know, I would make sure I woke up. If I had night matches, I had to take a nap and then shower and make it feel like it was a whole nother day. Because the day feels so long when you're playing night matches. You're just waiting to play because you have that anticipation. You, you really just want to play. So the night matches I struggled with in the beginning until I found my routine. And then I felt like once I showered and got up again at 6, okay, then I felt like it was a whole new day. And then I felt much fresher. So it's more about figuring out, managing maybe your day-to-day schedule, um, those sorts of things for me. But you never had anything like not wanting to walk on the lines between points, which is a classic I didn't walk on the lines between points, yes, thank you. Oh, right, okay. That that sustained throughout my entire career. (laughs) And what would have happened if you had? If I had, then, okay, so this is kind of weird, but if I stepped on the line with my right foot, then I had to step on the line with my left foot to even it out. Okay. I know. It Th- makes that me makes sound sense. A strange. You think so? I do. Yes. It didn't feel right. It made me feel off balance or something. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. <laughs> so that's almost it for this week's show. But as we finish our reflections on week one of the U.S. Open, how would you describe New York, and what would you choose to do if you were here? These are some of the questions we put to six ATP players. Guess who they are, and enjoy their answers. One word to describe New York City. Oh, big. You got me on the first one. <laughs> one word, Gregor. Um, uh, electric. electric. Why electric? City that never sleeps. Everyone comes alive in the nighttime. Great energy 24-7. It's crazy. It's a vibe. Uh, because the crowd is, is really amazing and it's so, you know, energetic. There's just so much energy in the city. Vibrant. So many colors, the diversity, uh, you know, the people, the energy, the fans, the courts, everything. You're in a play on Broadway. What actor do you want standing beside you while you're making your debut? I think I would like to see Daniel Craig, the, the, the one from James Bond, because he's very good in those movies, so he will probably give me some energy. Johnny Depp. Why Johnny Depp? Ah, it's just the greatest of all time. I mean, it's just hands down. I would say Leonardo DiCaprio. Leo. I mean, actor, Denzel. 
Axris, Viola Davis, Mount Rushmore guys, man. I feel like you can't go wrong. Probably Chris Hemsworth. Okay. Yeah. Might as well have Thor up there with you. Yeah, I mean, the attention will be off of me as well. So, you know, he could take over. I'll sit back. You just follow his lead with exactly. that. Exactly. Only have time to see one landmark in New York City. Which one are you going to? I mean, why you got to do me like that? Why just one? I don't know if it's a landmark, but Central Park. I just like walking around Central Park. Yeah. I'll go to Times Square because it's so like the light is amazing and so many people there and it's really it's really beautiful and uh, that's yeah that's definitely the one spot I'll go to. Statue of Liberty because I never been there to be honest. That's why I always every year I want to visit you know to pass by but I never never did it still so that's that's the goal. You can either host Saturday Night Live or you can go to the Met Gala. Which one? Saturday Night Live. Okay, why SNL? I just think it would be fun and more fun, yeah. You know, if you host SNL, you get to pick your musical guest. Oh, really? Who's it gonna be? Maybe Drake. All right, little Canada action. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to Met Gala. That was very quick. I'm going to Met Gala. I think Met Gala is awesome. I think it's great. I want to be a part of it one day. I would choose Matt Gala, obviously. Yeah, it's so famous. Uh, I mean, I would love to meet uh, many celebrities, actors. You know, I think it's a nice experience. Yeah. Oh, Matt Gala, one thousand percent. Well, I know Anna Wintour very well, and she'll be deeply disappointed with me. Um, I was supposed to make it the past five years, and I didn't make it. So that's my absolute goal. I think I'd go to the Met Gala. It's just something really cool I've always wanted to do, for sure. Hopefully, I'll get to do it sometime. A lot of celebrities always showing up in the Met Gala. Yeah, it's a big deal. I think I'll do the Met Gala. It looks pretty cool. For me, it's also very inspiring as a tennis player to see you know, celebrities outside of tennis. I was actually just watching a concert with Ed Sheeran, and how they entertain the crowd and everything is, is amazing. Dollar pizza or hot dog in New York? Mm. Which one are you leaning towards? Um, I'm more in the pizza, actually. Neither. You're not going with neither of them? Depends on my craving, but I gotta say, probably hot dog. What are you putting on that hot dog? Just ketchup mustard. Plain simple, 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 yeah. Dollar pizza. Because I kind of reserve like hot dogs for like either baseball games or like golf. So if I'm like not at either one of those two, I'm probably just going to have a pizza. You're running late to Flushing Meadows. You only have two options to get there. A taxi with the world's worst driver or it's the subway, but it stops at every other station. Uh, no, taxi. Even if he's the worst driver, I like fast speed and all that stuff that goes with it. So I'm, I'm cool. I can't take a helicopter. No, you only got a subway or a taxi. Take a blade. No, you got. Okay, I'll take the, I'll take the taxi. Even though he's the world's yeah, worst yeah, driver. Yeah, yeah, I'll take the taxi. I'm one of the world's worst taxi driver. Okay. It'd be terrible, but I can do it. I can. Every stop would, would drive me nuts. Yeah. Would drive me. Nuts. I would still take a taxi. I think I'm used to it. Uh, you know, I would sleep or I would just relax. Whatever happens, happens. If I'm late, okay, what can I do? I think subway. But it does stop at every other station. That's fine. Okay. That's fine. I'd rather miss my match than like get in a car accident, you know? There you go. <laughs> Denis Shapovalov, clearly more safety conscious than his colleagues Grigor Dimitrov, Taylor Fritz, Francis Tiafo, Holger Rune, and Karen Hachanov. Thanks to them for those fun answers. Brian and Jill, while I still have you with me, let's get your answers to just a couple of those questions. One word to describe New York. Jill? I'm going to take two words because I thought hectic and electric at the same time. Well, I'm going to go next because Brian's the local here. I'm going to say unrelenting. Nice. Because I find New York is, is constantly on the go. As the local, Brian? Unrelenting is excellent, Chris. My uh, one word is going to be frenetic. There, there's always, you know, it's a holiday weekend here. It's a Labor Day weekend in the U.S., so it's a 
quote-unquote sleepy time in, in New York City because everybody's out of town on vacation at the beach. And there's still a million things to do and get into, including here at the U.S. Open. So frenetic is what I'll go with. We're all roughly on the same page with that, aren't we? It's interesting. Okay, so you're making your debut in a Broadway play. Which actor do you want standing next to you and why? Brian, you start this one. I am going to go, I'm not a good actor, with Denzel Washington because he's a much better actor, so everybody will pay attention with him. I went to uh, the same university, Fordham University, as Denzel, so we could talk about uh, the Rams. And uh, he would cover for me and maybe give me some tips and try to salvage it a little bit. It's like being carried by a much better doubles player. Jill? Lin-Manuel Miranda, because we're in New York, and Hamilton was one of my favorite Broadway shows ever, and I just thought it was absolutely brilliant. And to be next to that brilliant writer and actor at the same time, I would just hope something would rub off and I'd be able to have some sort of talent like that. And a great show for learning about American history as well, to have a great night out at the theater and uh, learn something with it. My choice would be somebody who's not famous. Because one of the things that really gets me about going to the theatre in Broadway is that if there's a famous actor, the moment they come on for their first appearance, there's a round of applause, regardless of where you are in the play. And I find that so distracting. So if I was on stage, anybody who's not famous. There you go. I'm slightly cheating with the answer there. But uh, um, let's give you one more question. You only have time to see one landmark in New York. So which one are you going to see? Jill? I'm not quite sure I have a choice in this because I was born on July 4th, so I'm going to have to go with the Statue of Liberty, and it's worth seeing. Even when you take the boat ride out there, you step on Ellis Island, it is it is a beautiful sight to see, so I'm going with Statue of Liberty. Brian? Jill said boat, and that's actually what I'm going to do, the circle line. Uh, maybe doesn't get the attention other things do, but you can get on a boat. It's got a nice big open top, so you can sit outside if the weather's nice. And they literally tour around the entire uh, perimeter of Manhattan by water. So they go down the Hudson River, you know, down around the southern tip, up the East River, you know, Harlem River, go all the way up the northern tip, and then back down. It's a, a great way to see a really unique landmass. Everybody thinks about New York and Manhattan as this... We all used our words, frenetic beehive of energy, which it is. But it's also beautiful in a lot of places, too, that I think that gets overlooked. Well, my landmark would be Grand Central Station, 42nd Street, Midtown Manhattan. For me, it's a deep irony that America has turned its back on a lot of its railway or railroad heritage. And yet it has, in my view, the most beautiful station in the world and there was a gorgeous scene there's a film many years ago called the fisher king with robin williams and jeff bridges where they had a a a dream sequence dance scene uh, during commuter time in grand central and it was just a beautiful scene but you don't have to have that just to go into grand central the architecture there is stunningly beautiful do you appreciate it our listeners can't see how vehemently I'm nodding my head. Yeah, Grand Central Station is absolutely beautiful. Uh, the architecture is fantastic. It's uh, a shame and a disgrace that we have turned our backs on this kind of public transit infrastructure the way we have. And I will say the original Penn Station, which is under Madison Square Garden, had some uh, inspiration from Paddington in, in the western part of London. And when they completely tore it down in the 1960s, there was such an outcry that in many ways that kind of spurned uh, the modern preservation movement with these historic buildings. It all traced back to that Penn Station. So, yeah, we could, uh, this will be on our architecture podcast we'll cover. And it's interesting, a lot of the players there talked about the Met Gala. I mean, for our non-American friends, tell us, either of you, about the, the Met Gala. I'm not sure Jill's that familiar with the Met Gala. No, so, I'm familiar. I know it's about appreciating fashion. 
So the Metropolitan Museum of Art, right on Central Park in the uh, in the East 80s of Manhattan, uh, they have a gala every year, as the as the word goes, and it does raise money. But Anna Wintour, the editor in chief of Vogue magazine, and uh, very good a, friend of Roger Federer, exactly. So very familiar around these parts. Well, she's been in, I think, Serena Williams' box a couple of times over the years. She is in charge of this and there's a theme it's a Monday in May I don't know if it's the first Monday in May but it's in May so it's kind of an off time on the calendar and it has become I would say the society event in New York City because of the celebrities that she invites athletes entertainers politicians musicians um, and the the outfits are transcendent because it's the Met Gala it's fashion you've got to adhere to the theme that they announce in advance people spend months and years going on it I mean you could spend uh, hours going down an internet rabbit hole of looking up some of the dresses and the styles and even the, the men's fashions as well uh, that we've seen over the years at that. It's, I used to live not far from there when I lived in New York, and you would see kind of the viewing tents set up across the street because people get out there early in the day just to look across the street to try to get a glimpse of Rihanna, whoever it may be, just emerging and posing for the photographers. It has become the event. Well, it's amazing how much it's registered with the tennis players when they're here. There you have it. My thanks to Jill Krabis and Brian Clark. I'm Chris Bowers. Be sure to tune in next weekend when we'll be rounding up events from the final Grand Slam of the year. And in the meantime, please check out the podcast channel to find our exclusive one-to-one interviews where you'll find recent in-depth conversations with the coaches of Holger Rune, Tommy Paul and Stan Wawrinka. Definitely worth a listen. Thanks for listening now and enjoy the tennis.